Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. You may be seated. Now, I don't remember very many sermons preached in the Virginia Seminary Chapel, but one does stand out. The Reverend Dr. Richard Jones was a lanky, bow-tied, affable, professorial type who tucked his poplin suit pants into green Wellington boots for his morning walk to morning prayer when the dew was heavy. We seminarians were in training to preach, so even if we'd come to learn that there were still hits and misses even among the sermons of our professors. I'd always lean forward a bit when one preached, wondering how he or she might approach the task and the text they'd been assigned. And the text Dr. Jones preached one morning from was our reading from Exodus today, the Ten Commandments. Now, in some traditions and eras, I'm told, a sermon was supposed to be three points in a poem. That was not how we were trained at VTS. After one of us preached in homiletics class, Dr. Judith McDaniel would take her chalk to the board and write, what did you hear? What she expected was a single, clear, and coherent point, which meant that when she asked your classmates to respond, if a great variety of takeaways were offered up, you'd slide a little further down into your seat with each one as the stern disapproval of Dr. McDaniel, shall we say, ascended. You need to know this to get a sense of the mix of confusion, righteous indignation, and outright despair that arose when 10 or 12 minutes into his sermon, after having commented on having no other gods, on not making idols, and and not taking the name of the Lord in vain, launching next into his insights on keeping the Sabbath day holy, we realized what was happening. Dear God, a pleading with the one who might stop it, not taking the divine name in, in vain, Dr. Jones was three points into a ten-point sermon at 8 a.m. morning prayer. Not only is this homiletical anathema to us, by the time he finishes, we might be late for lunch. And it just goes to show you that even at a single seminary, there will be conflicting voices and mixed messages, even about what a sermon ought to be. Well, I'm going to do my best not to violate Dr. McDaniel's first rule of preaching, but I am going to violate her rule about not preaching about more than one text at a time. Not only that, I'm actually going to bring in a story from a book in the Bible we didn't even read today. But my point, and and go ahead and write it down so you'll all agree, should Dr. McDaniel show up and quiz you on it, she still kind of terrifies me. My point is that There are also conflicting voices and mixed messages in Scripture. But this is the genius of the Bible, not a flaw of the Bible. You need to know this to get a sense of the mix of... That's the same thing I just told you. Last week, I read a splendid little book titled Borders and Belonging by two Irishmen named Padraig Otuma and Glenn Jordan. I don't recall being told advertisements and sermons are forbidden, so I'll let you know that Padraig is preaching twice at Lenten Preaching this week, 
and my interview with him about borders and belonging will stream at 6.30 Wednesday evening. But the book is a brilliant reading of the book of Ruth, which was used, strange as it sounds, as a framework for hosting difficult conversations about Brexit in Ireland. Join us Wednesday for more on that. It's fascinating. But it was in Glenn Jordan's chapter on the liturgical setting of Ruth that I learned something curious about the Feast of Shavuot. This is the Jewish feast that occurs seven weeks after Passover. It's, it's the Feast of Pentecost on which tongues of fire would descend on the apostles centuries later. And central to Shavuot liturgy are two readings. One is the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Moses on the mountain with God amidst the fire and the smoke, trembling at the divine presence no one could look upon and live, returning with a glowing face and tablets of stone with the law etched into them by the very finger of God. This other reading is the book of Ruth in its entirety. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of Ruth, but it is the antithesis of the giving of the law. No pyrotechnics or thunder on a mountain. No obvious divine intervention at all, in fact. A Hebrew couple named Elimelech and Naomi take their sons to the land of Moab during a famine. The sons take Moabite wives, but by the fourth verse of the book, all the men have died and Naomi can't fulfill her family's obligations to the widows of her dead sons. Two women named Orpah and Ruth. Naomi decides to return to Judah and tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their mother's houses, find good Moabite men, and have the life and families they hope to have with Naomi's sons. She frees them. Orpah returns. But Ruth's well-known response to Naomi was, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well if even death parts me from you. Maybe you thought these words were from Ruth's wedding. They were not. They were Ruth's extension of loving kindness, chesed in the Hebrew, to her mother-in-law. Now, the scandal of the whole story's premise, or just a bit of it, is this. The Ten Commandments were the essence of the law, but they're only what Moses got on one of his trips up and down the mountain, right? The whole of the law will fill the rest of Exodus and most of Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well. And over in the 23rd chapter of Deuteronomy, we read, No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt. Moabites were hated and specifically excluded by the law by name from being admitted to Hebrew society because they didn't offer hospitality to the Israelites when they were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness. So think about it. Elimelech and Naomi, faithful Jews, go to Moab of all places in a famine. 
Not only that, their sons marry Moabite women, women who shall not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. So when Ruth returns to Judah with Naomi, she is a woman. She is a widow. She is a foreigner excluded by divine law. It's hard to overstate the risk she faced in extending this great kindness to Naomi, her poor, bereft mother-in-law, who'd lost a husband and two sons, off in a strange enemy land during a famine. Naomi, who changed her name to Mara, which means bitter, because that's what her life had become. The rest of the story is wonderful. Do read it. It's only four chapters. The law also requires that landowners not glean to the corners of their fields, you might remember, so that the poor and resident foreigners can gather food. Well, now, as a Moabite, the validity of Ruth's marriage, and therefore her widowhood would have been in question, but it is there that Ruth is seen by the owner of the field, a good man named Boaz, who might qualify as a suitor. It's complicated. Remarriage regulations in the law look Byzantine to us even when there's not a Moabite involved, but there's an understated but racy scene one night on the threshing room floor after Boaz has had too much to drink, and spoiler alert, in spite of it all, he and Ruth do end up together. The law provided the corners of Boaz's field where Ruth could glean, but it also said her people were beyond forgiveness. And yet, Holy Scripture does not flinch from telling the story of Ruth walking across the border between enemy countries, through generational hatreds and stereotypes, to the edge of a field set aside for the poor, even across the law that said she's excluded, and right into the heart of the story of Israel. Her presence reminding Jews year after year that the law can compel a people to be generous, but it cannot on its own plant loving kindness chesed, in the hearts of God's people, which is what the difficult goal of it all truly is. In the end, if there is a clear and unambiguous roadmap for a just and godly life, it's not the scriptures of Christians and Jews. Because our scriptures refuse to let even our scriptures become an idol by modeling a beautiful inconsistency one that won't even let a law written by the finger of God have the last word, one that provides space for a single Moabite widow to walk into it and say, what about me? To which scripture responds, not with thunder, stones from on high, but with the dangerous, selfless, loving kindness that Ruth modeled. The brilliant inconsistency of scripture not even allowing itself, even Torah, to get in the way of an unambiguous, in fact, it is through your impossible presence now at the center of our story, Ruth, that God has changed us and charged us with your costly way of loving kindness above absolutely everything else. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them. 
and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.